a bit. Welcome to Modern Art is Rubbish. Tom, stop doing those intros. I was just checking my mic level. Mic levels. Mic level were you, indeed. Indeed. Well, Tom, uh, before we start, I think, you know, like I like to say, this episode may not be suitable for young children to listen to. I think that's the case this time, isn't it, really? I don't know. But, yeah, I'll take your word for it. Yeah. Okay. Well, you take my word for it. So, this podcast may contain scenes of a sexual nature and drug use and violence. No violence in it, I don't think. Oh, yes, there is violence. Oh, dear. There is violence, but only only mild threats. So, so not suitable for younger children. And also, you listening at home, please head over to the website, modernartisrubbish.com, and look at the images before. Some of them are quite adult, although they are drawn art. So, just be prepared for that. Oh, yes. And if you listen right to the end of the show... Uh, there's going to be a special musical uh, contribution by Tom. My night is rubbish. Isms. Isms. Juxtapose. Didactic. My night is rubbish. My night is rubbish podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of Modern Art is Rubbish. You right, Tom? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks, Marcus. Great. Good. Right, Tom, do you know what today? I thought I'd take you on a journey to late Victorian England. And today we're going to be looking at one of the most important and revolutionary artists of the late 19th century, Aubrey Beardsley. And now he was a young Victorian dandy and someone whose work went on to influence many artists, such as Picasso. You can also see strong influence in a lot of 1960s work in particular. Uh, one probably close to your heart, the Beatles' Revolver, Revolver album uh, by Klaus Vormann. I don't think that would have happened without Aubrey Beardsley having done his thing. Sure, yeah. yeah it's a nice album now. I like that album cover. Um, it's a nice record. Yeah, nice record, nice cover. Well done, yeah. everyone involved. Yeah. <laughs> He's an artist whose work shocked Victorian Britain and is driven in part by his illness. He, he actually died so young um, that he never even made the 27 Club. Oh, that's a massive fail then. <laughs> no, it is, isn't yeah. it? Really? Yeah, maybe in Victorian times it was a different number. What number did he die at? He died at 25, so very young. Yeah, so, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, so he never quite made. And he um, he drew almost exclusively in pen and ink, and he created fantastical, sometimes erotically charged scenes and people. And he himself actually described some of the subjects as quite mad and a little indecent. So, uh, Tom, I think what you're asking for at the moment is no artist uh, story would be complete without a biog of early life, would it? Yeah, so could you give me a, a quick biog? Yeah. Well, Tom, we need to go somewhere to start off this biography. So are you ready to travel through the medium of the magic medium of podcasting? Oh, yeah. I want to take you to Brighton. Okay, well, I'm here already. Yeah, oh, no, I can't take you. I'm in Colchester. Yeah. I'm at the bottom of my garden, so are you are going to take me across the city somewhere else? Yes. Well, 
we are going to take to somewhere else in the city. And I'm in cultures at the moment, but I'm going to emerge into Brighton. Right. So, Albury Beatty was born in Brighton in 1872. And... He was very poorly from a young age. I mean, in fact, his mother described him as being as fragile as a piece of Dresden china. I have no idea how fragile that is, but I'm guessing... I'm guessing it's nothing to do with the bombing in Dresden, like, 80 years later. No, no. She wasn't predicting. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I don't Se- know how... 70 years later. I no, say. I don't know how much China survived in that uh, awful, yeah. awful Second World War. Um at the age of seven he actually contracted tuberculosis now that was a bacterial infection that mainly affected uh, affected the lungs and in victorian times this would have been a death sentence as there was no cure and beardsley would have been acutely aware uh, he would have that he was to die at a very young age you know that was it it was you get you get tuberculosis then consumption as it was known there ain't much chance you're going to live very long he also had a sister who was born the year before him and they, he had a very, very close relationship with her. Um, and they were both enthusiastic churchgoers and she actually went on to become an actress and was born the year before him. Now, at age 17, he had a major haemorrhage which caused him to, him to cough up blood and this certainly would have focused his mind on getting his art out to a wider public. You know, because you can imagine... You know, you you know your your time's limited, and he's a very driven guy. So around this time, he moved to London and lived with his mother and his sister. And by day, he had to work as an insurance clerk at the at this time. And at night, he would draw by the light of two candles. Cool, cool, yeah. So the thing is, Tom, is that when you look at this guy, you know, he wants to make it. He's driven, and you can see that every move he's makes, he's always trying to push it push himself out there and he's driven and he's determined and he's actively networking going out meeting people and he's even seeking out a lot of influential creators of the time and edward Byrne jones was one of the most famous and influential artists in the uk at the time ever confident beardsley finds out his address you know goes up to his house and knocks on his door dressed in in really fine clothes and you know looking the part he was invited in and just so happened that Beardsley uh, has a selection of his artwork under his uh, arm to show Burne Jones and Burne Jones so impressed uh, was he with the work that he was shown he actually suggested that Beardsley become an artist now this is something that he wasn't given to do because normally just advise against it no don't bother don't bother becoming an artist and Beardsley actually gave him a pen and ink drawing and Byrne Jones actually liked it so much that he actually put it up in his house. And this is the first work I'd like to talk about and it's an illustration of Act 2 from a Wagner opera called Siegfried. Now, a Siegfried is a fantastical opera involving things like giant dwarves and dragons and stolen gold. And this illustration, you know, it's extremely confident and masterful work and he, he drew it when he was just 19 and what it shows is it shows Siegfried standing in the foreground with a sword in hand randomly in the uh, opera Siegfried has a history of breaking swords so he's obviously quite proud with the one that he's got because he hasn't broken it yet and from around uh, the back of uh, Siegfried 
the head of a dragon is sort of peering around and the image is beautifully intricate and it's got great contrast of blocks of black in the foreground and spaces of white in the background and what's really interesting and unique about Beardsley's style is the fact that he the lines that he's drawn are as thick in the foreground as they are in the background normally as an artist when you do line drawings in order to indicate depth you would make the lines at the front thicker and heavier and the lines at the back thinner to give that illusion of depth and he's managed to create depth without doing that just keeping the line pretty much the same and consistent throughout which is it's quite a revolutionary thing at the time uh this is a great example of his work that was detailed so what do you think of that tom yeah it's beautiful you can see why the guy's thinking you know i'm pretty good and i'm i should be out of there First major work, right? Again, he's working as an insurance clerk in the day. Lunchtime, you know, he's always going out and mingling and mixing with people. And his local bookshop owner asked a publisher friend to come along and see some examples of Beardsley work. Now, Beardsley just happens to coincidentally turn up when the publishers arrived. And so impressed by the work... Uh, that he saw the publisher actually offered him a job to illustrate an 1893 edition of Sir Thomas Mallory's uh, Le Mort d'Arthur which is a book that's based on the tales about the legend of King Arthur so you've got all the tales about Lancelot the lady in the lake and Merlin and such like and basically as soon as he got this commission he said that's it he gave up his work as a clerk and concentrated full time as an artist now, it was actually a really big undertaking and it required him to do over 400 designs for this book. So he started off with this very intricate sort of uh, illustration designs, such as the ones we've discussed. And gradually over time, because there was a lot of pressure of work that he had to do, he uh, changed his work from it being less elaborate and he started to produce less intricate works, but still had this beautiful simplicity of line. Uh, for his next project in 1893 he landed a major drawing commission and it was with a brand new hot magazine called Studio and that featured all the latest uh, arts and designs and he was given the featured artist slot for want of a better word in the first edition and this brought him to the public's attention because they gave him a really really good write up now this would have given him the credibility and the confidence to approach one of the greatest playwrights of his time, Oscar Wilde. So he found out that Oscar Wilde was due to publish a one-act play called Salome. And Beardsley thought, you know, I'll send him off a drawing and see if I can get uh, myself noticed. Now, see, I found this play Salome quite interesting. So I just want to actually give you a, uh, Tom, give, and you listening at home, a, my crude synopsis of the play. Uh, though I'm not doing the genius of Wilde any justice. So basically, Salome is based around uh, biblical events uh, relating to the death of John the Baptist. So, Tom, we've got to go somewhere. And uh, I'd like to take you to Judea, to the palace of King Herod. 
and it's around 35 BC. All right, do I have to put my shoes on? Yeah, you do. You do. Oh, what's going on? This is a bit rowdy. Yeah, well, we're here, Tom, on the night of a wild banquet and drink is flowing freely. So, are you thinking who is Salome? Is that... Am I reading your mind right at the moment? No, but who is Salome? (laughs) Well, the stepdaughter of King Herod and the daughter of Queen Herodias. And basically, in the story, Salome is not liking this party, so she's deciding to sneak away from the banquet. So we're just going to go on to the balcony now. So if you follow me, Tom. And you can see her. And you see that guy there. Can you see that guy over there I'm pointing to? Yeah, okay. Oh, that handsome man. Oh, my God, he's a bit of a hot pot. (laughs) Well, that is actually... That is actually a captured Syrian prince. And basically, he really fancies her. Uh, But, you know, she is not interested. So he's been... She's obviously not. She's obviously not into captured Syrian prisoners. Well, who who is these days? <laughs> uh, Tom, listen out. Listen, have a listen. Can you hear anything? Let me out. Can you hear those uh, intriguing noises? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think that was? Well, it sounds like someone who's uh, locked up somewhere. Yes. A, pri- a prisoner. Yes. Correct. It wasn't the voice of me, as as some people may be listening to. It's actually the voice of Jokinen. Now, Jokinen, the character of Jokinen, is actually John the Baptist. Now, just as you were intrigued by that amazing voice, you were very intrigued, weren't you? Uh, no, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, yeah, God. She goes down and she thinks, oh, I've got to check out who this is. And she sees him and she sees Jokinen in prison. And she really really fancies him and she thinks oh I like you I really like you but you know it's John the Baptist so he's not really into all that he's not into a, he's not interested what is he a more of a sort of Sunday school type of guy vibe I, I, I guess being a John the Baptist out of the Bible probably does <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so she's not liking this because he's obviously not interested he's rejecting her so she she declares I will get to kiss you Basically, whether you like it or not, I'm going to get to snog you. Yeah, you're a prisoner, remember, Jokinen? Yeah. And then she leaves. Anyway, we need to go back upstairs now. Tom, come and follow us up. Back upstairs. Now, we can see Herod and his guests. And they're, uh, as you look, they've just burst onto the balcony. Boo! Boo! (laughs) (laughs) Now, (laughs) now Herod... (laughs) Now, Herod is, you know, as you do, Herod is absolutely taken by how stunning his stepdaughter looks. He's absolutely obsessed with her. Uh, okay. So he's seeing it, thinking, crikey, Salome, you may be my stepdaughter, but you look great. So driven with desire, he is desperate to see her dance. You know, it is. If you're driven with desire, you think, God, I want to see you dance. And she says, no, I'm not going to dance. What do you think about that, Anton? Uh, I'm not going to dance unless you go and kill that damn Jesus. <laughs> what? <laughs> <I'm sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly. Nearly, all right. 
she refuses to comply. She says, look, I'm not going to dance. And he says, look, please dance for me. I will give you anything if you dance for me. And he literally means anything. So she's all right. I'm going to do my dance. So she does a dance of seven veils and she ends up naked. Job done. And in payment for this favour, she asks, you know, perhaps quite reasonably, for the head of Jokinen, the character of John the Baptist. So how, reasonably? Well, I don't know, maybe <laughs> yeah. not. Maybe it's not that reasonable, I don't know. Maybe yeah. I. Maybe it's not a reasonable request. Yeah, it seems quite brutal, but yeah. <laughs> so, at, but you haven't heard the second part. So she can give him that big kiss that she promised. Oh, okay, it, it's all starting to add up. Yeah. However, when she receives the prize, she's utterly disappointed. She gets his head. And even with his head cut off, he still seems to be playing hard to get and does not seem that interested. That's the thing with um, like decapitated heads. They are. They're always playing hard to get. (laughs) (laughs) So, so ultimately, she's not very satisfied. She hasn't really got that kiss that she wanted. Now, of course, Herod, appalled by what he's seen, he's appalled by the fact that she wants to give this severed head a kiss. He has her crushed to death by his guards, and they do it with their shields. This is a lovely story, Marcus. Yeah, it's a lovely story. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I did say it's not for a little kid. Now, the point is, is that he wasn't upset by the fact that, appalled by the fact she wanted a head, a severed head. He was appalled by the fact, I think, that she wanted to kiss him. Yeah, well, he was jealous, wasn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah, jealousy. Yeah. Would you get jealous of a severed head? Uh, Well, it's, it's not so much the head, it's her affection, isn't it? Oh, yeah, affection for the severed head. So that was really never going anywhere, that relationship anyway. Well, certainly not after she'd been crushed by shields. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) So, now, I want to talk about the Aubrey Beardsley illustrations that went with this play because they're amazing and they show his that simple line drawings that I was talking about, his new simplified style. And what's different about the drawings is they're not drawn, they're drawn in a response to the story rather than the literal interpretation. So uh, they, and they actually caused quite a stir when they were published because they, be, they were quite graphic and sexually charged, but they are, they're beautifully executed works. Now, the first one we're looking at is a stomach dance. And you can see a topless Salome She's doing a, a sexy dance and there's like lots of flowers dancing around her and she's um, she's doing some good moves there. And in the corner, you can see this kind of strange creature with like fiery-like hair and he's jamming on his... Uh, what kind of instrument would you say that is? It's like a two-string guitar. Yeah, that's C6 Steve. <laughs> C6 Steve in the corner. <laughs> and the picture as you can see is beautifully split into white background and the foreground is, is is black and if you look in the corner you can see a sort of strange like signature can you see it and it's like three three sort of lines and a dot and three dots yeah nice that is his signature now Beardsley was really quite influenced by Japanese prints 
as were many sort of artists uh, such as Van Gogh, you know, who were inf- influenced by Japanese line art. Now, on to the next picture, which is called The Woman in the Moon. And in this picture, you can see a naked, androgynous figure. Now, that's quite revolutionary and shocking for the time because androgyny, you know, that kind of ambiguity simply wasn't expressed in anything, really. And also, you can see this androgynous figure and you can see Salome and they're looking at the moon. And the moon appears to have the face of Oscar Wilde. Now, it shows... The, you know, the confidence of this guy that he's got his patron for this piece is Oscar Wilde and yet he's prepared to kind of slightly take a little stab at him. Uh, why would that be a stab? Uh, it's slightly mocking, isn't it, the moon face? It doesn't... Do you think he presents him in a good light or are you quite happy with the moon in that? Oh, man, I would love to be the man in the moon. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so on to the final picture from Salome. Um, you can see it's so beautifully drawn, and it's uh, you can see Salome, and she's floating in a white robe as you do, and she's holding the severed head of Jekyllan, uh, and and she's about to give him that promised kiss. And in this image, you can see white blood is pouring down into a black pool which in turn is nourishing the uh, sort of phallic looking flowers okay what do you think about that yeah he looks like robert plant um what the head john the baptist yeah no no Okay, for this next right, on to the next section, right? Okay, uh, Tom. Yes. Can you uh, can you take can you take this yellow book outside for a second? Yeah, Marcus. Sure. Yeah, I'll take it outside. Yeah, I'll give it here. There you go. Oh, I can't get the damn door open. Oh, what's all this commotion? Jesus, what's going on? Marcus, there's a whole crowd out there. They're all shouting. They're burning Beatles records. (laughs) Tom, sorry, I forgot to mention we're in Victorian London and this book calls Quiet a Stir and actually, in the end, resulted in Beardsley being forced to sell a lot of his possessions and almost losing his reputation and his career. So... The Yellow Book. So with his fame and celebrity now firmly established after the the Salome uh, book, he suggested to his publisher that he'd like to create a quarterly publication uh, showing contemporary art and literature featuring some of the leading writers writers and artists of the time, but not Oscar Wilde, because I think he wanted to establish his own fame himself, separate from Oscar Wilde. Um, and the art what was interesting about this work was the art would not illustrate the literature and the literature would not reflect the art so they were separate to each other which is quite different and the title he chose was The Yellow Book and this was deliberate because French books of the time containing naughty content were sold in yellow wrappers 
So seeing a new book like this would cause a scandal in people's minds. He knew the he was always up for causing a bit of scandal. And um, when it was released, it actually was an instant hit, and it actually sold over five thousand copies in the first edition. I'd just like to have a quick look at what was you know what was slightly edgy about Beardsley's art. Now, the cover at the time would have been considered quite provocative. Um, and on it you can see a nighttime candle lit scene and there is an image of a lady wearing a low cut dress and there's a mask around her eyes so it's like they're going to some kind of nighttime, perhaps sordy event on the front cover as well there's another uh, figure and they've got a mask on and I think I don't know what you think Tom I think they're looking quite lustfully and they also, if you look at their eyes, they look like they've been on something. Yeah. I don't know what they've been on, but they've been on something. Yeah, they've been hacking the Pentagon. Hacking the Pentagon? Yeah. <laughs> What's hacking the Pentagon? Well, I don't know. They look like uh, some hackers. <laughs> oh, that's... You're, you're, you're offended, aren't you, clearly? Oh, right, yeah. I'm obviously very offended. <laughs> <laughs> it's got his, his signature on the cover, by the way, hasn't it? Yeah, the, the Japanese-style signatures on there as well. Now, if you look at the next picture, what you could see is a lady in evening wear, and she's out alone at night on her own. Does that look that bad to you, that picture? It's a picture that's very dark, and her dress is outlined in very faint white lines, and all you can see is the bright white of her head and her top. It's a long, flowing dress. It literally yeah. looks like she's come from a funeral because it's all black. Uh, but also, it looks like it must be a dry, a balmy night because otherwise her dress would be absolutely ruined. Yes. Now, the thing is, do you find that a bit uh, shocking? Go on. It, don't, don't tell me this shocked people in those... Yes, it did. It, yeah. Because, Tom, this is Victorian times. What respectable lady would be out on her own, all dressed up like that? Marcus, she's just come from her dad's funeral. Give the woman a break. <laughs> <laughs> She's mourning. Uh, well, you know. I, I know you may think, you know, you're covering for her, but no respectable lady would have been seen out at night on their own in Victorian times. All right, okay. So that's quite a provocative in, image. Apparently in Victorian times, very shocking. Yeah. Yeah, but was it shocking for everyone or just for the, the stuck-up people? Uh, yes, yeah. probably. Probably yes. just the stuck-up people. Yeah, but yeah. that's, you know, to get your notoriety, you have to... Uh, Upset you know, the salmon faces. Yeah. <laughs> the salmon heads, even. <gasps> now, this book, it's a massive success. And around the time of the fifth edition... He actually nearly lost everything. It was a short-lived success. Now, the reason was, in 1895, Oscar Wilde was arrested for gross indecency. Now, gross indecency, for those of you who don't know, was basically for he was accused of a homosexual act, which isn't indecent at all, but there you go. It was to Victorian minds. Interestingly enough, I don't think women could be... Uh, done for gross indecency in Victorian times to but, what I remember but they could be frowned upon for walking out at night alone 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, di- a, d- a different sort of indecency. Yeah, that's, that is quite interesting, isn't it? There you go. Um, so he's arrested, but when he was being escorted to the police station by two officers, Wilde was seen holding a copy of a French erotic novel which is bound in a yellow wrapper. Has this got any... Is any reference to any of this story we've been discussing today in the word yellowism? I'd be interested to find out. I didn't look into that, but it does seem there's a lot of... uh, There's a lot of yellow coming up. Yeah. Saucy yellow. Saucy yellow, yeah. Yeah, saucy yellow. Not not just yellow okra or something like that, which isn't saucy. (laughs) I don't know what that means. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but that's just my... Uh, we'll talk about schoolboy minds later um some people thought what oscar wilde was carrying was not the naughty french novel they thought it was a copy uh, of of beardsley's yellow book how very convenient (laughs) (laughs) so in their minds they associated a publication with decadence and immoral behavior and they felt it was spreading a polluting influence. So basically, I thought, oh my God, Oscar Wilde's got Beardsley's yellow book. Beardsley's, you know, Beardsley's work must be horrible because, so quite unfairly, even though Oscar Wilde had nothing to do with the yellow book, a jeering crowd got really angry and they gathered outside Beardsley's publisher and they started throwing projectiles at the building like mud and stone and apparently they even broke some windows. Now, sadly, John Lane said, that's it, Beardsley, fad enough, and fired him. And Beardsley lost almost everything. So this is a guy, you can imagine, a short life ahead of him. And he's just lost everything he's built, his reputation, his income, and almost his career. Yeah, maybe in his head, if he's obviously having a mental breakdown over it. But he had he had quite longevity and he made sure he did with the stuff he did in his short life, didn't he? Well, yes, that's the point. This is the thing about the drive of this guy. The one thing is, is you know, a lot of people are driven and focused and know what they want and they just go for it. Beardsley didn't give up. Now, a short advertisement break. Hello, insurance is us. Uh, Aubrey Beardsley speaking, how am I help you? It sounds like you've got a nasty cough, sir. I was wondering whether you could give me some insurance against an angry mob. Uh, yeah, we can do that. Uh, what, what is it? Is it? Is it? Do you want full salacious material cover as well? Um, just cover for offence taken by yellow things. Okay. Also, would you be interested in receiving other goods and services relating to insurance from us and third-party suppliers, such as receiving a high-definition turtle art print from Modern Art is Rubbish? Oh, that sounds wonderful. Thank you very much. Sign me up. Where do I sign? Okay, thanks for calling. Bye. (laughs) Bye. So, just head over to modernartisrubbish.com and subscribe to our email list to get your free artwork and to be updated on the latest Modern Art is Rubbish news. And he moved to France with some of his some of his uh, artistic friends and they said right okay 
let's take a break away from all this uh, scandal. And they decided to set up a new magazine called The Savoy. It's sort of like an art magazine. So he went back to London and of course, no one's interested in him. You know, they don't want the scandal. They don't want anything to do with that kind of material and scandal. But there was one publisher and his name was Leonard Smithers. Now, Leonard Smithers, he's publishing anything. You know, he's he's up for it. If no one else wants to touch it, he's the man. You know, he, he prides himself on publishing the works that no other publisher will touch. And actually, in his bookshop that he owned, he actually had a sign in the window that said, Smut is cheap today. So I assume he was having a smut promotion. Yeah. So where was his bookshop? Was that in Brighton or...? Uh, no, that was he was in London. In London, because that's yeah. where where Beasley moved to. Because we haven't like got to Brighton yet. We started in Brighton. We haven't got back here. Mm-mm. He never came back. He left before his career took off. Oh right, okay. Yeah, so that's it. So sorry, there's no more Brighton in this story. Yeah, I just presumed he was going to come back, but I'm well, if you want a little bit, of, do you want a little bit of Brighton? I'll give you a little bit of Brighton. Well, I know there's a blue plaque. Yeah, there is. Yeah, it should be f***ing yellow, shouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, just to mention, Brian, there's a lot of um, motifs, very ornamental flourishes and sort of like uh, incredible kind of exotic designs in his work. Now, if you live near the Brighton Pavilion, that will have been an influence to him, no doubt, in his work. And you will see shapes that look a bit like the Brighton Pavilion. Well, Brighton had a, a reputation at the time of uh, naughtiness, didn't it? Because yes, of and decadence. Decadence, yeah, because of uh, some prince who lived at yeah, the yeah, Pavilion. Yeah, the Prince Regent, yes. The Prince Regent, yeah. So that was before, that was uh, that was in the yeah. early part of the 19th century. Um, so yes, it was known as a bit of a party town. Um so that might have influenced his young life in some way. If he, yeah, possibly. well, I mean, pro- probably Brian still had that reputation when he was born. Oh, right, yeah, sure, yeah. 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 Well, it still does now in a lot of ways, doesn't it? Yes, yes, it definitely does. It definitely yeah. still does have that reputation. It's hard to say from within the city, but you've like out, been out the city for a few months, so... Yeah. What's, what's everyone saying? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. By the power of the podcast, I'm still in Brighton. No, but you're you're not though, are you? We we, I, we did the power that don't destroy the illusion of the podcast, Tom. Yeah, but you you've said a few times you're in culture, haven't you? No, I, I travelled by the power of the podcast magically to Brighton. Oh right. Oh sorry. Yeah, no, I'm slow on the uptake. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> we're in Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. So getting back to the the publisher, he's got this deal, Leonard Smithers, with Leonard Smithers, who's prepared to publish anything that no one else will touch. And around this time, Beardsley was doing, uh, again, Beardsley always changing his style. He started doing illustrations in a more French-influenced style, really ornamental and beautiful. Actually, I'll put uh, uh, an example of this work on the website for people to look at but what I want to talk about is the more notorious illustrations that he did and these were in a more simple style and they had more of an erotic nature now as we've said before throughout his career 
Beardsley's work regularly featured phallic motifs and had a sexual undercurrent. Also, bear in mind, Tom, and you listening, that he was not able to indulge in anything too vigorous as he feared a hemorrhage. So you can imagine this kind of like sexu- his sexuality in some ways it came out in his work as well because he never really got to express himself any other way now the works that we want to talk about are some of his most beautifully executed yet still I would say shocking to some even today and these are images he drew for a limited print run of a book called Lysistrata now Lysistrata is an ancient Greek baldy comedy I've picked a couple of uh, illustrations to look at. Okay. Are your sensitivities, uh, are, are you? Are they fragile today or are you okay? No, I'm fine. I've been looking after a baby for the last few months, so <laughs> no amount of shit or sick and, or anything can upset my constitution. Okay, so the first one we're looking at is an illustration. Now, bear in mind, this is set in Athens. Now, the first one I'm looking at is called The Toilet of Lampito. Now, the first thing to to say at the time as well is Aubrey Beardsley was very interested in erotic Greek vases and pottery from, you know, there's a lot of Greek pottery from ancient uh, Greece and around that area that depicts quite sexually explicit scenes. And this is what he's encountered into his style. Uh, The first work I'm looking at, we've got a Cupid and he's got he's got his bow and arrows and he's got his uh, he's got his black wings and he's got good black hair and whilst grabbing his man parts is powdering the lower part of a woman's bottom and she's reaching down to grab herself it appears to be and she's beautifully illustrated with with kind of like almost like greek style ancient greek style hair and she's in very very ornate stockings Anything to say on that? Do you, is that a common scene you've seen? Uh, I'd describe the hair as Amy Winehouse hair. Amy Winehouse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and... Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I've gone back to being a schoolboy again, I'm sorry. So, right, on to the next one. This is called Lysistrata Defending the Acropolis. Now, I don't know about you, but normally when I've seen like recreations of ancient battles on telly and such like, normally you would have like them pouring oil, burning oil on the uh, over the ramparts onto the people trying to break in. Yeah, you'd have shields and swords and all shields. that. Those yeah, sort of things. Yeah, shields. Yeah, yeah, you would. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, archers. But in this one, uh, I think the women have got very, very uh, creative... And what it shows is the image of uh, naked Athenian women and Lysistra trying to defend the city. And they're using the contents of chamber pots and they're farting to repel the invader. Now, in this case, the invader is a Retreat! Retreat! (laughs) (laughs) He's turning, he's making a quick getaway. And he clearly doesn't. It's clearly worked. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's clearly been... an effective strategy 
I'm sorry, but if you walked into a room and were confronted by that, you would retreat. Yeah. <laughs> and he's all he's got is some kind of stick with a sort of like a sort of like leaves on top of it to defend himself. Yeah. Or feathers. Or flames. Yeah, or flames perhaps. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't have flames near those. So. It's the Olympic torch, isn't it? Yeah, I wouldn't carry the Olympic <laughs> torch to defend myself when someone's doing bottom burps. <laughs> Uh, farting yeah. <laughs> yeah now what is amazing is that these pictures these scenes are so baldy as I said but they are exquisitely beautifully drawn the women have beautiful flowers in their hair and you know exquisite frills on the stopper, tops of their stockings so it's a really amazing kind of mix that is created and I can imagine that's like people have been looking at it and going I don't know. Oh, it's shocking. Oh, no, I like the drawing. But, oh, my God. Oh, I like the drawing. And I send you into a loop of disgust and pleasure. You're looking at it, you can feel the power of the fart. It looks like it's really giving some, like, (laughs) uh, pressure out. It's like from Viz magazine or something. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Now, in the end, as I said, very short life. In 1896, Beardsley suffered uh, another serious hemorrhage. And in 1897, he converted to Catholicism. Um, he was always keen, though, wasn't he? Yeah, he always was. He, that. he took, a, obviously, a sabbatical between his childhood and 27 or whatever, 25. Perhaps, perhaps, yeah. yeah. I think there were a few sort of religious things, and gradually, over time, he did become more and more influenced by religion and this was in part he actually had a sort of like a an intimate friendship not physical but an intimate friendship with a Russian uh, guy who actually encouraged him as did his mum to sort of like become more religious towards the end of his life and so in 1897 as I said he converted to Catholicism and he then had to move to the French Riviera for his health because obviously the air and everything's better there but sadly gradually he became so ill I mean, this is quite awful, you know, this guy who's ah and everything. He was no no longer able to control his pen to draw. So he's obviously deteriorating now and he's only 25. And with the little time he had left, no doubt in conflict with his religion and his work, he actually wrote to his publisher and said, look, please destroy all the Lysistrata artwork and all other naughty drawings that I've done. And that was almost like his final wish. He actually said, look, I'm dying, please destroy them. And in 1898, as I said, at the age of uh, 25, he actually died. Now, what do you think the publisher did? Do you think he uh, said, yep, I'm so sad, I'll fulfil your wishes? uh, Are we talking about Leonard Smithers? Yes. Well, what I know about him, he likes to do whatever anyone else do the opposite of what um, is expected yeah, of, so, of him. So he wouldn't have done it. No, the the mere fact that the works are still the works are still around. I think some of them are actually in the Victorian Albert uh, collection in uh, London, the museum in London. So um, no, he didn't. So sadly, he I believe he just published some more copies. I suppose it's good business, really, isn't it? Yeah, that's good. good And uh, maybe if he hadn't, we wouldn't even be doing this podcast. 
So, Tom, that concludes our um, our podcast episode. Now, so to finish up, Tom, I, I I believe that you've been doing a little bit of a music. Oh yeah, no, I have. Yeah, my new single was out on Monday last week. Uh, the single's called Star Splitter um, by mm. Ob Tom. And how can people hear it? It's on all streaming services, on Spotify, and on. if you don't have Spotify, you can hear it on SoundCloud. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, Tom, why don't we, uh, instead of having the modern artist rubbish theme, uh, we'll have it play out at the end. I think that would be a wise, a wise move. So, just to say, uh, also, if you can please subscribe to our email list and follow us on all our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, etc and please check out our patreon page uh so tom uh before we go um i think we should just play out with your song then so here's here's star splitter <laughs> <laughs> oh hang on i should say that um our friend of the show elizabeth e designed the artwork <laughs>